And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's quite a beginning that's given here that Jesus in these final moments, he talks to his disciples and he gives a little bit more detail. He's been saying all along that he's going to be delivered up. He's going to be handed over. It's going to be the religious leaders that are going to do this. But I want you to notice that now he gives them the timing. He tells them after two days, the Passover is coming and it's going to be at the Passover when I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be delivered up. It's going to be at the Passover when I'm going to be crucified. And so he is setting forth the timeline for his departure, for his crucifixion, for his glorification. But I want you to notice what Matthew does next in in giving us this picture about what is about to happen. You'll notice in verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. No surprise there. Here's the leaders. They have been envious and jealous. They have wanted Jesus dead. And now they are gathering. They are plotting. They are scheming. And they are making their plan to arrest Jesus. But I want you to notice what's told to us in verse 5. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, Jesus just said, it's going to be during the feast. And the chief priests and the elders of the people are saying, not during the feast, because there's going to be an uproar. It's going to be a problem. And I want you to see that Matthew is setting up a collision of wills before we go into these final chapters. You know how sometimes you watch a movie and it kind of gives you this hanging question marks so that you watch the rest to see who's going to win or how's it all going to play out. Here's these two sides and who's going to ultimately victorious. Well, Matthew is putting forward two sides. Jesus says, after two days, it's going to be the Passover and it's going to be at the Passover where I'm going to be crucified. And then here are the chief priests going, we got to arrest him. We got to do it by stealth. We got to do it soon, but we can't do it at the Passover Because there's going to be so many people in Jerusalem and it's going to be a riot and an uproar. And so we can't have it during the Passover. So the collision of wills has been put forward. And the big question then, ultimately, that I believe Matthew wants us to think about. Is Jesus in control of these events and knows when he's going to be crucified? Or are the religious leaders in control of these events and they will crucify Jesus when they want to? You know, so much of Jesus has been telling us, this is my doing. I'm in charge. I know when it's going to happen. And you are going to see a lot of weight in this account over these final chapters of Jesus showing that he is in full control. And has full knowledge of every single activity that's about to take place leading up to his crucifixion. All right. Now, this is going to be shown to us in ultimately a couple of pictures. We're going to look at two disciples in these first 16 verses of chapter 26. And the question that I want you to have in your mind as we look at these two disciples is is really this. What is Jesus worth to you? 
This is the question that is ultimately going to be looked at in these two accounts of these two disciples that Matthew is going to put together and place before us for our consideration. How do you value Jesus? What does he mean to you? What is he worth to you? What kind of value do you place upon him? I want you to notice the first scene before us as that question is answered. You'll notice in Matthew chapter 26, and we're told in verse 6, Matthew 26, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. I want you to envision the scene for a moment is that Jesus is in Bethany. That's not far from Jerusalem. That is often where he would stay, typically with Mary and Martha and Lazarus when he would come and do his dealings in Jerusalem. But this time I want you to notice he's in someone else's house. He's in Simon's house. An important detail given to us about Simon. Simon is a leper. Now we have seen Jesus deal with leprosy a long time ago back earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. But here, even in the final days of Jesus You are seeing the power of Jesus, the power of cleansing, that he is not defiled. He's not made unclean. The religious leaders would have never gone into the house of Simon the leper. But here is Jesus. He's in Simon the leper's house. He's having a meal. They're reclining at table. And I want you to just get a sense of the scene to try to visualize it for the moment that we are not given a name in Matthew's account. We're just simply told that a woman comes in and she has a flask of fragrant oil or ointment that she breaks open and places it on his head as a means of anointing him. Now, to to get an appreciation of what she's just done, uh, archaeologists have found these things over there in that that region and they uh, are able to kind of put together that it appears that these kinds of flasks a fragrant oil were very expensive. So expensive that they usually would cost upwards of about a year's salary. So without telling your neighbor how much you make every year, I'd like for you to just kind of think about for a minute how much you make in one year and just place that on the value of this flask of fragrant oil that she has just walked into this house And there is Jesus reclining that table. So he's on his side and she now breaks that open and places that on his head while he's at the table. Now, in, in getting that scene, you would imagine that probably the next statement would be something about, wow, this was really amazing. What a wonderful woman. But I want you to notice verse eight. We're told in verse eight, when the disciples saw it. They were indignant and they were saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and give it to the poor. This is a really interesting scene. Here is this woman. She comes in with this really expensive flask. Here's something that she has preserved to use for Jesus. It is very costly. She's now anointing the head of Jesus. And as she's doing it, just imagine the disciples who are also reclining around the table going, 
Well, what a waste that was. Unbelievable. This lady doesn't even know what she's doing. Doesn't she know that she could have sold that? You could have got tens of thousands of dollars out of that. We could have sold that and we could have helped the poor. How dare this woman be so, so thoughtless. I mean, come on. I mean, it says they were indignant. So just imagine the tension of the table. And here she's doing this act. And the disciples are all kind of grumbling and indignant going, I can't believe this. What a waste. Unbelievable, this woman. But I want you to notice something about Jesus' response. Verse 10. Jesus, aware of this, parenthesis, he's always aware of this. <laughs> Here's Jesus. She's seen what's going on. He's always aware of what's going on in the hearts and the thoughts and the minds. He's aware of this that's going on in the table. Notice what she, he says in verse 10. Why do you trouble the woman for she has done a beautiful thing to me. Here they think they're being very pious and righteous. Oh, think of all the good we could have done. Oh, how you've wasted this on, on Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and just says, what, what are you doing here? Leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? Why are you so upset? She has done a beautiful thing. Not only does he say that she's done a beautiful thing, but listen further in verse 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What Jesus teaches here actually sheds a lot of light and some great insight into the understanding of the woman. Here we have back in the, the beginning of this, in those first two verses, we're told that Jesus is now telling his disciples, I'm going to die this week. Right? Two days then the Passover, and I'm crucified. So, this week, I'm going to be handed over, arrested, and crucified this week. That's what he's telling them. And she has such an understanding that she goes and she gets this very expensive, fragrant oil because she understands that this is the last opportunity. She understands that she's not always going to have Jesus with her. That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 11. You're always going to have the poor. You can do this some other time, but you will not always have me. You don't understand that even though I've been telling you about me giving up my life and being crucified and just saying it's going to happen at the Passover, that it means this week she does. She has an understanding that this is her final chance, that this is her opportunity. 
And she's going to seize it. In fact, she has such an understanding and is seizing the moment so well that you'll notice in verse 12, he says, you want to know why she did this? She's preparing me for my burial. Unbelievable. She's understanding the gravity of the moment. She understands what's at stake. She understands what this week somewhat is going to look like. And so she has grabbed this expensive oil and brought it in and is beginning to anoint the body for burial because that's what you would do in those days. You would go once the body was dead and you would take it to the tomb and you would go and you would do all the burial spices and anointing and oils. And she's doing it preemptively knowing that this is his week and this is his time. And so powerful is this action. That Look at what Jesus again says in verse 13. Jesus says that wherever... The gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. This story is going to be told. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because here's my big question that will come back and answer at the end. My big question is this. What has she done that is so significant that when the gospel is proclaimed, This should be told with it. That's what he's saying. When the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole world, what she has done is going to be told right alongside of it. In fact, right here in Holy Scripture, it's told right alongside of it. Here it is for all the world forever to know about the action of this woman. What has she done that is so great That it should be always remembered with the proclamation of the gospel. That is my big question to you. We'll be back there in just a minute. But I think we need to go forward just a couple more verses. Because I want you to notice that Matthew now tells us about another disciple. And his actions, I think, shed light on her actions. About what Matthew wants us to see. In regards to how we should value Jesus. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we're told, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. So here is an interesting movement of events. Judas now goes to the religious leaders. And we were told back in verses 3 and 4, the chief priests and the elders of the people have gathered in the palace of the high priest. There they are with Caiaphas and they are plotting and scheming and trying to figure out how can we get Jesus arrested and killed, but do it in such a way so that it's not in public. That's the problem. That's the big problem of what the leaders have to deal with. They could just walk into the temple any time when Jesus is in Jerusalem and just arrest him. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you do it and not get the whole city to hate you? That's their problem. 
They're trying to do this secretly. That's what we were told there in verse 4. They're trying to arrest him by stealth. How can we get our hands on him in a way that nobody's going to ever know that we did this? And the problem is Jesus doesn't have a house in Jerusalem that when he comes to town and he stays in his house that night, you go knock on the door at 1 a.m. and go get him and go, okay, we got you. He doesn't live there. So how are you going to get your hands on him when he's not in public? How are you going to grab him and arrest him and kill him so that nobody sees that you did it? That's what they're trying to figure out. And Judas comes walking in and says, do you need an inside man? Do you need somebody to know where he will be in the dark when he's all alone? When he's in places that are in private and not public, do you need that? How much is it worth to you? So Judas goes to them and says, what will you pay me for me to set that up? What will you pay me to give you the information you need ahead of time so that you can capture him secretly? And I want you to notice the, the, the answer that they're given here is in verse 15. They say, we will pay you 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's really easy for us to read 30 pieces of silver and really think that's very paltry because 30. We just, with our economy, we just go 30 to 30. Okay, $30, right? I mean, that's what they, so 30 pieces of silver probably estimates out to around three months of wages. So I asked you earlier to put your salary in mind, right? Hope you did that. You got that on the, on the flask of, of ointment, your whole year's salary right there in a bottle. So what I want you to do is, is to divide that by four now. Okay, so I know. Carry the one. Divide that by four. And that's how much you just got paid to betray Jesus. Three months of work. So, friends, this is not $30. This is tens of thousands of dollars, right? If you make $40,000, you are talking about $10,000. So, this is no small amount. Sometimes I think when we talk about the betrayal that Judas goes through here with Jesus, we just think of it as so paltry, so small, so insignificant. This is a third of your income. This is a lot of money. And so they offer 30 pieces of silver. And I think it is useful to consider that this is what it's worth to these religious leaders to get rid of Jesus. That's the value they place on him. In fact, 30 pieces of silver, according to the book of Exodus, was simply the cost of a wounded slave. It's it's really not that much in terms of a life. But in terms of dollar amount, it's fairly significant. And so I don't want you to be dismissive about this, but I more want you to focus on Judas' words in verse 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What is he worth to you? And I'm going to show you what he's worth to me. We're going to work out the options of how much. And they agree upon The three months of wages. They agree upon the 30 pieces of silver. All right. Let's talk about these two disciples and why they're sitting here 
in this position. And we will come back to this woman in just a moment. But I want you to first begin by thinking about Judas. Because Judas' approach to Jesus is this. What can he give me? Or what can I get out of him? Now, I want you to think about this idea for a moment. Here is a disciple of Jesus. He's been with Jesus for over three years. He's spent all of this time with him. He's seen the miracles. He's heard the teachings. And at the end of it all, as we are coming to the end, as Jesus is saying, this is my final week. This is it. I'm going to be handed over at the Passover. Now is the time. Judas now moves and says, what am I going to be able to get from Jesus? What can I get out of him? And the reason why I believe this is so important to think about is because we live in a religious culture that is all about Christianity and following Jesus means what you can get out of Jesus. And that is the mentality of Judas. Judas is following Jesus for what he can get out. Out of him. What can benefit can I get out of this? What is this going to do for me? And if you take a look around the religious world, I mean, this is all it is. It's all about giving you whatever you want and you need. We need God to take care of our physical desires, take care of our problems, do what we want in this life. Tell us that what we're doing is great. We think that God should be working for us. That's how we often look at God. And unfortunately, the church is presented as if it's consumer driven. We're at McDonald's. You pull up, you walk in, you pick something off the menu board you want today. Did you like your Lord's Supper today? Were you all happy about that? Okay, I'll come back next week. Wasn't too bad. Oh, I didn't really like the sermon. We need to find somebody else who's more dynamic, more interesting, more entertaining. This is how church is portrayed. Is consumer driven. What is God giving me? And I want you to see that what we are being shown here in Matthew's account is that Judas was following for what he could get. We have other accounts that validate that idea. Matthew doesn't go there here. But Judas is following for his own self-interest. And so when it all boils down to it at the very end, it's all about what can I get? And I want to give you a very important message and a very big warning. If you follow Jesus for what you can get from him, then you will give him up when the price is right. If you follow him only for what you're getting, then there's going to be a time where you're going to walk away because the price is right. And we do this in a lot of ways. We do this... Well, I prayed to God and he didn't answer the prayer that I way that I wanted. So I'm not going to follow him anymore. That was the price. He didn't do what I think he should have done. Because I'm God and he's not. And I'm going to tell him how life ought to go. I'm going to tell him the way things ought to be. And if he doesn't do things the way that I think that should be done. And usually what we mean by that is. I have money and I'm comfortable and I have my family the way I want and my job goes the way that I want. And if my life isn't the way exactly it should be, then I'm not going to follow God. 
Do you know how many people have walked away from God because life didn't go according to what they think God should have done for them? There's a lot. Because if you follow Jesus for what you're getting from him, you will eventually walk away. There will be a price. It will finally be worth it to you to say, I'm done. He's not giving me what I think he should give me. He's not doing for me what I think he should be doing. He's not whatever it is that we have in our mind. So we finally just simply walk away and we give up. Now come back to the woman for a minute. Because I asked you a question about her. I asked you a question about why was her act going to be told when the gospel is proclaimed? What is so amazing about this? Why should this be right here at this key moment in the final days of Jesus' life? And why would Jesus say, you leave her alone. It is a beautiful thing that she has done. It is an amazing thing that she has done. In fact, it is so valuable that it's going to be told when we tell the gospel around the world. I'd ask it this way. What makes this action so gospel saturated? And I believe it is simply this. In the final days of Jesus' life, she wasn't asking, now what can I get out of Jesus? What she did was she determined what she could give to Jesus. There is something precious in her heart right here. That in her understanding that her time with him is limited, that she then makes the calculation. It's what you imagine her going into her house and looking, what can I give Jesus? And here is this flask of fragrant oil that is worth a year's wages. And she goes and says, I can give that. And she grabs that flask. And she goes to Simon's house and she enters the room and there's Jesus reclining at the table. She breaks open that flask and pours that all over his head and begins to anoint his body. She was looking at what she could give Jesus. And I want you to note for her, there was nothing too costly. You know, she didn't go into the room and go, I saved a whole year of wages for this. This is a lot. This is tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, there's some things I could give, but that is really a lot. That is pretty costly. That's really expensive. I mean, let's give to Jesus, but let's, you know, let's draw some lines. Let's draw some boundaries here. I mean, come on. That's a little excessive, right? That's not what she does. I just want you to be so impressed by her that she looks at what she could give. She looks around and says, what can I do for Jesus in this moment? And it is so powerful that she is willing to grab something so expensive that she has surely saved up for and has spent time to have and says, I can give this to Jesus. This is what I'm going to give him. And so I want you to think about what Jesus is worth to you. That's where I started this whole thing. And I want you to place a value on him. Is Jesus worth your time? 
Is Jesus worth your effort? Is Jesus worth your career, your possessions, your gifts, your wealth, your worship? What I'm asking you to think about is there's something too costly to give him. Is there something that you say, you know, I will follow him this far, but not that far. It is really easy for us to slip into this consumer driven kind of worship where it's all about what we can receive from him and get from him. And unfortunately, that has plagued American Christianity. It is all about all we can offer you. We will offer you, offer you, offer you all the things that we can possibly give you. Jesus always rejected that when people came up to him. One of my favorites, he tells a story in Luke's account where he tells this parable story about this rich fool who is all about building bigger barns and bigger barns. And what will I do with all of my wealth? A great parable. But do you remember why he told that parable? He told the parable because a guy interrupts Jesus while he's teaching and says, teacher, teacher. Okay, yes, go ahead. Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. What can you give me? Tell him to share it. And Jesus then says, you're acting like a rich fool who's wanting to build bigger barns because you're making Jesus about what you get rather than what you give. This is about what we can give to Jesus, not what we can get out of these moments, what he can do for us. It is all about what we can give to him. Friends, please think about this. Is there anything too extravagant for us to give to the Savior who came to rescue us from eternal punishment? I mean, please put it in that lens. What is too much to give to him? Because he saved your soul. Jesus doesn't ask you to give what you don't have. He just asks you to give him what you do have. This is why Jesus would go around saying, if you want to follow me, you're willing to give up your life because I gave you that. Are you willing to give up your stuff because I gave you that? Are you willing to give up your time because I gave you that? Are you willing to give up your energy because I gave you that? Or is it too much? Friends, Jesus says that what she did was a beautiful thing because she asked what she could give him and did not do like Judas, who said, what can you give me? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is easy for us to unfortunately only think about our relationship in a one-sided way of what we receive and how often we fail to think about what we can give. Lord, forgive us for when we have been so consumer-driven in our thoughts toward you. Forgive us when we've thought about worship as a means of what we get out of it 
when we've thought about what we own as what we get out of it, when we think about our time as what we get out of it. Lord, forgive us for when we think about you in every dimension about what we receive. Lord, help us to see that you have given us everything from our careers and from our possessions and from our wealth to our very lives. You have given us everything. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart like this woman who looked to give to you. Lord, protect us from having a heart like Judas that only served for self-seeking means. And Lord, I pray that you would help us look in our lives and look in our hearts and see what else that we can do for you. Help us to grasp that there is nothing that is too great. There is no sacrifice that is too deep. And there's no offering that's too great for what we can do for you because of all that you've done for us. Lord, thank you for your son. And thank you for his will to go to the cross. Thank you for his amazing life and his love for each and every one of us so that he would lay it down at his own time, in his own way, so that we could enjoy salvation. Lord, let that never escape our hearts and help us to be a people who will follow you and serve you no matter the cost because you are worth everything to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you leave here today, please ask yourself, what's he worth to you? What value do you place on him? And if Jesus were to ask of it to, from you, would you say, well, that's asking too much? Will you follow him because he's worth giving everything? Or do you follow because there are certain benefits that come from following him? And yes, there are great benefits that come from following him. There's no doubt about it. But he wants you to love him for him and to serve him for him and to see how wonderfully great he is and to give all of your very being to him, to follow him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we help you make that decision this morning to turn away from your sins, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, making that decision to follow him wherever he will go, every step of the way. We would love to help you do that. You can talk to us afterward or you can come forward now while we stand and while we sing.